I'm going to give you a one-line explanation of what coercive control is. It's a pattern of behaviour designed to trap somebody in a relationship. All coercive control is serious. Not all fractured families involve coercive control, however. So the, the I think the, the key skill, perhaps, for the, the family court system is to be able to identify it when it's when it's there. Welcome to the Resolution podcast. This month, we are looking at dangerous relationships with Professor Jane Monckton-Smith. Professor, could you introduce yourself to our audience in case there is anyone who doesn't know you? Yes, okay. I'm Professor Jane Monckton-Smith and I am a homicide specialist but uh, I specialise in homicides that are preceded by coercive control, stalking um, and domestic abuse. And, and you started life as a police officer? Many, many years ago, I was a police officer. And it's really embarrassing to think how many years ago it was. I think I joined 40 years ago. So things were very, very different in those days to the way that they are now. But yes, that's where my kind of criminal justice interest started. All right. Well, look, Jane, we've invited you on the podcast to engage with you and to understand how we can make sure the family justice system is the safest it possibly can be for people who are at serious risk from their partners. But before we get into the meat of that, perhaps you could tell us about the eight stages on the homicide timeline and as you do so if there are any signs that professionals should be aware of as the case is escalating along that trajectory please do identify them for us. Well it's interesting you say any cases they might have that could be on that trajectory so any case where there's coercive control domestic abuse or stalking is on that trajectory and once those people, those uh, I call them controlling people, once those controlling people are on that trajectory, they're never actually off it. That doesn't mean, however, they're going to get to the later stage where there's fatal violence. But most of them will be getting more than halfway along it. So that's quite important to, to think about because it does turn the way we think about domestic abuse on its head. So what I'm really saying, I suppose, is that these are serial and repeat offenders. Um, do you want me to take you through each stage and just very, very briefly say what that stage is? Yeah, that's probably the easiest way, isn't it? So this is something that in um, in academia, which is very, very different to family justice, um, we call it temporal sequencing. So it's something that says, okay, this risk towards harm is going to escalate. So we've said that there are eight stages to this escalation and each stage represents an escalation. So the first stage is our first escalation and that's the history of the person. So have they done this before? Have they been controlling before? Have they used abuse? Have they stalked someone before? So we're saying they're a type almost, okay? So the second stage is when the controlling person who's of this type meets somebody they want to be in a relationship with. That's characterised in many, many cases, if not most cases, as things moving quite fast. So people might move in together quite quickly or you know, declare love for each other quite quickly. But this is a stage of, of limited duration, so it's, it's, it's not going to last that long in most cases. So the third stage is when we move into the relationship. So this is a relationship dominated by coercive control, domestic, domestic abuse, whatever you want to call it. Now, that stage can last any length of time at all. It could be that people stay in that stage until the day they die. So... What we need to look out for really is the next stage, which is stage four, which we call the trigger stage. Now, most of the time, and we're talking really probably over 90% of cases, that stage four trigger is going to involve 
a separation, a threat of a separation, or an imagined separation. And that's when the trouble starts for controlling people. So stage five is what we call the escalation stage. Now, this is the stage most controlling people get to this stage and probably won't go past it. But they're, they're, they're quite harmful, dangerous, toxic when they're in that stage five, this escalation stage where they've been controlling and abusive in the relationship and now they're responding to a threat to that relationship. This is the stage when uh, stalking can start or post-separation abuse. So post-separation abuse, I think, is probably very relevant to the family court system. Now, stage six is when stage five, which usually that's about trying to get control back, maybe trying to get the relationship reinstated. If that doesn't work, some of them will, will circle back to stage one. But we need to be concerned about those who move on to stage six, which we call homicidal ideation, but some, you know, more simply could be a change in thinking. So that's when somebody starts to see the way to resolve their problems could be through homicide. The seventh stage is the planning stage, planning for that homicide. Um, I, I will just say that historically we have thought that the, the, the planning stage doesn't exist because we've historically looked at intimate partner homicides as very much in the moment, very spontaneous. But actually, no, the, the, the planning stage exists. It exists in most cases. And there is research from America as well, which has had the same findings. So this stage, I think they had 83% of their cases had a planning stage. And stage eight then is where there could be fatal violence. It could be the victim. It could be the controlling person. It could be children. It could be other family members. And it, it could, in fact, as well be suicide. So that's, that, that's the, the very broad and very basic stage progression. Jane, as you were talking and as you were beginning to talk, something came into my head, which I, I heard this morning in a, in a different meeting, in which I hear over and over again, which is a concept. <laughs> I don't know if it's a concept, but it, it's a, a form of words that we hear, which is low-level domestic abuse. And we hear it over and over again. The court ordered contact between this person and their child. Yes, there were allegations of domestic abuse, but it was low level. Yes, there was domestic abuse, but it wasn't sufficient to make a non-molestation order or it wasn't relevant in this context. But do you have any any thoughts on that? It, it, once you start framing domestic abuse as about control, does that concept really work any longer? Well, no. It doesn't, does it? So we, we've got to work out how people are defining what low level means. And most people think that low level domestic abuse means there's no or there's very little violence. Now, they would be very, very wrong to think that that means that the domestic abuse, or I'll call it coercive control, the coercive control is not dangerous. They would be wrong to think that. That is to, to, to think about the, the old way that we used to think of domestic abuse, which was about violence, domestic violence, basically. So, yeah, I, and I think you're, you're right to raise that. If somebody's using a term like low level, you need to be saying, what do you mean by low level? Do you mean this woman's not got a broken nose? The control is the dangerous factor. I suppose the flip side of that question is, now that we have redefined the way that we think about domestic abuse, and I think coercive behaviour has been put at the heart of the way that the court system thinks about domestic abuse, there is an awful lot of it about, I mean, a lot of it, about and it comes up over and over again but your 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 timeline the culmination point is a very small number of people so is is it wrong to put that very large number of people who appear to be in this situation on a timeline that ends fatally for in in a small number of cases do you see what i mean yeah so the the timeline is a staged progression 
to get to stage eight is the minority of people. That does not mean that stage five or stage three are not dangerous and damaging and, you know, absolutely wreck lives. And just because somebody's at stage five doesn't mean they'll never get to stage eight. You've, you've, you've always got to be concerned. And, and what are we trying to protect people from? So this, this timeline isn't merely to protect people from homicide. It's to show it. So I've given it in very simple terms. So each stage is there for a reason. And we will say what the motivation is for the controlling person at each at each stage. And their motivation is really important. And if their motivation is to totally destroy somebody or punish them, short of killing them, that's that's still got to be something we, we need to protect people from. The issue for the family court is that now that this language and this understanding is widely known, the problem is, is that you can get a judge sitting for the day, perhaps hearing private law children cases, and, you know, perhaps four or five of the six of them might have the language of coercive control in it. And it could have one of the litigants saying they're subject to coercive control from the other, or in some of the cases, both of the litigants are saying I'm subject to coercive control from the other. And then you've got the judge there trying to make decisions in our pressured system where, you know, you know, there are no, there's no resources, there's no time, there's no additional help, but they're trying to make safe decisions, but also make sure that fractured families, children are still able to have the relationships that they should with the other person. So, what is it, um, if anything, that the family justice system can do to try and look into these cases and and look to understand where it lies in the in the severity level? Right. So you've asked me a number of questions there. So I, I feel I have to I have to answer in multi level way. So first of all. What is coercive control? We're bandying this word around. Does anybody actually really know what it means? So most people think that coercive control is a facet of domestic abuse. That's wrong. That's not the way to look at it at all. And what the what was found in, in a, a government public consultation was that Coercive control is the best framework for talking about and understanding domestic abuse. So it's almost like you can right, erase the words domestic abuse and just replace them with coercive control. So that, that's the first thing. OK, now. Then you've got to understand, all right, we're, we're going to use this language of coercive control. What is it? So. I'm going to give you a one line explanation of what coercive control is. Right. It's a pattern of behavior designed to trap somebody in a relationship. OK, so then if that's you, if you accept that as the definition, then all of the things that uh, occur within that relationship are to achieve that, are to achieve trapping this person in a relationship. So violence very effective way of trapping somebody, financial abuse, all of these things, right? Don't need to give you loads and loads of examples. So then you say, okay, what's low level? What's serious? What's not really serious? Okay, so I'm, I'm going to be a pain in the neck now. And I'm going to say all coercive control is serious, not all Fractured families involve coercive control, however. So the, the I think the, the key skill perhaps for the, the family court system is to be able to identify it when it's when it's there. And, and there are ways of doing that. Now to move on to your to your next question, which was about 
bilateral violence and, and maybe counter allegations so that both parties are saying, well, this person's controlling to me, and but, but then so is this person. So that does take a little bit, bit of skill. But the really, really simple, really simple way of thinking about that is, and this is what the research into bilateral violence is telling us, is that you have control and you have violence in that situation, maybe. Two people may be violent, but only one is controlling. Find out which one is actually controlling. And if you can do that, that might clear the mist a little bit. Yes, that would be a different way of the court analysing it, I think, because it's very difficult when both parties are saying the other person is is the either the perpetrator of violence or has has started the incidents. Then it becomes very unclear. Can I? Yeah. Can I? So can I just? I just. I'm just going to put another another comment in here about coercive control and identifying a controlling person. So coercive control is kind of predicated on rules of a relationship. So every relationship is going to have rules set by the controlling person. So when somebody has an argument, for example, you find out what the argument was about. They're usually quite willing to tell you, aren't they? So um, more often than not, via actually listening to what the argument was about rather than thinking, I wish these two people to stop arguing or I'm not interested in the minutiae of your relationship, you can find a lot out. So say there's been an incident where there was some violence. What, what started that incident? Now, a lot of times the rule of the relationship, a rule of the relationship is going to be, don't you ever make me jealous. She was talking to another man. She was dressed wrong. She was talking to the neighbour. Whatever it is, whoever is making that accusation is the controlling person. I'd be interested to explore gender a bit. We know, I think, it's your specialism, not mine, but we we know that most uh, most murders are carried out by men. We know that the vast majority of murders are in a domestic situation or the victim is somebody who's known or in, in a relationship with, um, known to or in a relationship with the perpetrator. And I think probably most of our anecdotal experience is that when we're dealing with cases of coercive control, it's usually... Definitely not always, but usually the male perpetrator. I'm just wondering, and you may not know the answer, but I'm wondering, is, is the research into what, what it is that people who behave in this way are seeking through their behaviour? I mean, what, what, what are they trying to achieve? Right. So coercive control is... Um, as I've said, a pattern of behaviour designed to trap somebody in a relationship. So that means that this the controlling person takes that very, very seriously and literally. I own you. You are a, a possession of mine. This relationship is a possession of mine. So that's their motivation. When you try to exit that relationship, they, they really take that quite badly. And it's seen as almost an injustice to them that you're taking their rights away to this relationship, which is why separation is the single biggest factor in serious harm and in homicide. So as to the question why it's gendered, um, oh gosh, there's so many reasons why that might be. But to to put it simplistically, we're only talking for a short time. I think that um, possession is much more of a male perspective on relationships and people than it is a female one historically culturally and certainly legally if we go back over the years possession was by men of of women so you've got that kind of baseline there if you like and the there is a very very gendered (laughs) nature to the statistics so 
the world, the global homicide report says that 82% of victims will be women and 90% of perpetrators will be men. But having said that, anyone in a relationship with a man is at higher risk of serious harm and homicide. So that means men in relationships with other men as well. However, women do kill in this context, but in much, much smaller numbers. And they're not... They're not really killing out of a sense of you're my possession and, and I'm losing you. So if you if you split women who kill their male partners into two broad groups, the bigger group, say 60 odd percent, I think it is, will be killing to retaliate for abuse against themselves. But the other group are behaving in much the same way as the men. There's just far fewer of them. You mentioned the, well, you've mentioned a couple of times the point of separation or attempted separation being a trigger and an escalation. So how how often have these cases had a brush with the family justice system at that, at that point of separation? I, th- I think for the family justice system, there may have been contact before, but it's yeah. the point of separation, perhaps, that that contact starts for a lot of people, because that's the point at which they might be divorcing, there might be cu- child custody battles. And if you've got a controlling person who's at the point of separation, they are going to use the family court system to try and get that control back. Now, I'm not saying in any way that all child custody battles involve coercive control, but you need to find out the ones that do, because they are they are using the system and they are, they're not good to have custody of their children. No. I'm sure both Anita and I and every person who's listening who works in in this world will have had a client turn around to them and say he is using this process to continue his abuse of me. I mean, that might be financial litigation. It might be litigation about children. uh, It might be the fact that he has deeper pockets. It might be all sorts of things. But the, the, the actual adversarial family court system being used or being perceived as being used as a tool of coercive control is is a theme I've certainly heard over and over again. I think once if if you accept that some people are controlling people who are on this timeline, they will use the system if they can. They actually are the type of people who would probably very be very at home litigating and getting into battles because they're the type of people who like to win so but your victims are the type of people who will probably do anything to stay out of that that boxing ring if you like and they know exactly what their controlling partners are capable of and they they usually either very frightened or absolutely determined that they are not going to let their children be subjected to what they were subjected to. Now, like I said, this does this is not in every child custody issue or every divorce. So it's good to be able to find out what type of person you're dealing with. Does a, an adversarial system play into their hands? Yeah, absolutely it does. They, they generally are people who like to win. And the adversarial system is a win-lose kind of, of environment, isn't it? And it puts you up um, against your opponent and you get to fight as something they, they probably are very comfortable with. A lot of very controlling people like to conduct their own defences and um, act for themselves. Yeah, so we've again, probably both seen that on multiple occasions. But if we can't change the system, as it were, the whole system about it being adversarial, at least in this podcast, what is it we can do within that adversarial system to make it a easier place for 
the people who've experienced coercive control to navigate and make it easier for them to ensure their best evidence is heard and their their points are able to be put across as opposed to worrying about whether they're winning or losing in the overall battle well i i mean this is just my my personal opinion i i think the the system itself treats victim testimony with skepticism that skepticism is bolstered by the arguments from the con- controlling person and when people get divorced and i i have had conversations with judges about this they say they don't want to be dragged into the arguments of a divorce well the arguments of a divorce are very different to a controlling person getting into a court and manipulating everyone in that court so i really really would like to see the the system accepting that these people exist accepting that they're quite dangerous and maybe having processes in place to to identify coercive control rather than just see this as a another facet of of a bad divorce i'm just just thinking as you're speaking then the the first point of contact with the system is often the kafka safeguarding checks so you know the the kafka meet the two litigants usually over the telephone but they read the initial papers the initial application any schedule of allegations of harm that have been put in and then they either speak to them well they usually speak to them both on the phone and generate a letter and sometimes they meet them again on the on the first appointment but it's at that point from what i understand you're saying it's at that point that effectively we would need to be able we would need to triage these cases i.e is it on the uh, trajectory that you're saying would be more appropriate if it's been a case of coercive control or is it on the trajectory where we are looking at the disputes and upset around around a difficult breakup yeah i think you're right you do need to differentiate between the two things at, at the moment i think there's a there's a problem with believing victims maybe and there's also a problem with the way that we perceive domestic abuse we we want to see that they've been to the police multiple times and they've been injured but even then even then with that history they're still treated as if well we'll put all that to one side you're going through a bad divorce that you know as if the two things can be separate incidents they they aren't they are an extension you know leaving somebody who's really controlling is quite a dangerous thing to do going into the family court system is a very dangerous thing to do yeah yeah i i, I want to say and i i want to i want to engage and hear all of this but i also want to say that my experience of the family justice system is we're all desperately trying to engage and trying to find out you know who's at risk and we're trying to protect those people but especially in the last couple of years i think i i hope our understanding is is coming forward but it's not a lack of will is my experience in the family justice system although i'd be obviously willing to accept our you know our knowledge has not been as it should be well i don't you know in in the victims commissioner report 80% of legal practitioners said they thought that the process was deeply traumatizing for victims so the process itself which you can't avoid as lawyers can you you're you're in the middle of it you you're trying to protect your clients but you're in the middle of this adversarial system as well which everyone is basically saying is a really traumatizing system so you know the system much better than me <laughs> How would you change it? I mean, you're you're absolutely right, and 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 I think those conversations are ongoing on so many levels, and and it and it and it is constantly evolving. Although whether it's changing in a fundamental way is 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 definitely 
open to question, but things definitely evolve, but they, they evolve from learnt experience. I mean, so, some of the hardest, unlike Anita, as a solicitor, I, I get to see people much earlier in the process because they come and see me often while they're still in a relationship. And what they want to talk about is their options and where they should go and should they bring it to an end? And if so, how? And should they move out of the house? And should they take the kids with them? And all of those conversations, which I find the hardest conversations that I have, much easier once you're in a court process and you're you know you're dealing with evidence and what have you but those, those early stage things where you where, where you're realizing that you are dealing with somebody who's very very vulnerable i don't know I, I, you you may not but i mean any tips for dealing with people in that in that situation who are who are beginning to come to terms with the nature of the relationship they've been in and and wishing to bring it to an end well, you know, I really sympathise with you because I have those conversations sometimes with people where they're thinking about leaving. And my knowledge is that that's, that's a high-risk strategy for them and it needs to be planned and it needs to be supported. If it's not, and then you just go straight into maybe a criminal justice system or maybe a family system, that is going to escalate things. You can't escape that. It is, but that does not mean you shouldn't enter the system because not do any, doing anything is equally bad. So I, I really do sympathise with you and, and, and the victims who want to do the most dangerous thing. Are injunctions meaningful in this situation or not? Right. Well, I, I've got very strong feelings about injunctions. So the research tells us that an injunction escalates risk. That does not mean, you know, that you shouldn't issue injunctions. But the biggest problem that, that we find in the work that we're doing is whether those injunctions are... <laughs> when they're breached, <laughs> whether, you know, what is the response to that breach? Because if, if they are breached and there is no response, the risk escalates yet again. So I think the system is not robust. Issuing a piece of paper that's saying to somebody who's obsessive, do not con contact, you're just saying, let's have a gentleman's agreement. Unless the court is going, going to say, we're going to deal with this absolutely robustly. But you're right in saying that just the issuing of an injunction really makes things worse. So it needs to be done with safeguards in place. And the court now relies on the, on the police to enforce its injunctions, its non-molestation orders. And what about... There's been recent authority and and guidance about without notice injunctions. And I think it's fair to say the move has probably been towards tightening up and making sure that without notice injunctions aren't are only issued in the exceptional circumstances where they're required. I would have said the opposite. Why why do you do you think a without notice in, injunction should be something that's not done very often? Well the, well, the concern is that, of course, it's a court decision made without one party having their side of the case put. So they're only made in exceptional circumstances. And there's, and there's two levels of injunction. There's obviously the one that says, you know, you can't go and beat someone or threaten them or stalk them and all of those things. And courts are perhaps a little more willing uh, about them. But actually, they're, they're the ones that have been tightened up recently. And then obviously, there's the... Uh, an occupation type order which could exclude you from your home and you know uh, and both injunctions could have some sort of exclusion order about them the thing is if you if you if you let somebody know that an injunction is coming their way yes. what protection is there for the victim in that time period between them finding out and the injunction being issued 
that's a massive danger time. So for high risk cases, I think the without notice injunctions is potentially safer. You stage stage one of your timeline was to do with with history, wasn't it? With, with somebody who's done this before, mm-hmm. then that is a a red flag to somebody. Should be a red flag to somebody starting a a relationship. And I I know that there are procedures in place if somebody has a conviction for domestic violence that potentially domestic abuse that potentially the police. Is this right? The police are able in some circumstances to tip off somebody in a future relationship. Mm-hmm. The family courts are daily making dozens, hundreds of findings in various sorts of proceedings that there has been domestic abuse in the relationship. Those cases rarely, if ever, then go and become criminal cases the for one thing the burden of proof is, is 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 very different in the two sorts of proceedings I guess. But I mean should there be some recording of those making a record of those findings so that people don't find themselves walking into relationships with people who have already been found to be domestic abusers. Yeah, the Domestic Violence Disclosure Scheme has been around for some years now and it was updated and I think it's it's better known now as Claire's Law, isn't it? So that gives the police the, the, the ability to go and proactively go to a, a new partner and say, look, this person's got a record. Or it means the new partner can go to the police and say, "Is does this person have a record so that's that's not a criminal thing and i and i don't know what kind of information the the police disclose whether it's just convictions or whether it's intel or 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 what it is i think it's up to the police i think i think they can disclose more than convictions if they have other i think they're able to but they wouldn't know about a finding in the family court unless for some reason that you know there was some sort of interaction with the police during Mm. In separation. If they don't know, they can't. No. They can't disclose it. I mean, there's, there's, there, there are problems with with Claire's law, but by and large, I think it's a good thing. It's a good thing that it came in. Not the police won't always disclose, and the proactive use of Claire's law, I think, is is not as much as it could be. But I think all intel. So whether that comes from the family court, as you might suggest, that that's added to the police intel, is is going to give, um, not only give the victim the information they might need about making a decision, but it also is is bolstering the, the, the police knowledge of what this person's capable of. Some, some sort of law change to give a judge a, the power to say that information about a person should be entered onto the police national database, for instance, if a, you know, for it to be entered there that a finding of domestic abuse mm. was made uh, against a particular person. I think that would be a great thing, but <laughs> whether or not it would actually happen... But I, I think it would be a good thing. I think we need as much in, in intelligence on these people because they are serial and repeat offenders. They don't, they're not just like it in one relationship. It's not about the dynamics between two people. It's about the the, the world view of the controlling person. Is there any, sorry, following from that, is there any research on their capacity to change? Yes, it's not research that I've done myself, but it. So controlling people are not all the same. They're not, um, you know, they're, they're, they're different personalities and different approaches to life, of course. And even within that, there are there are broad categories. Um, so 
these coercive controlling people perhaps who are personality disordered antisocial personality disorders or narcissism or whatever they probably are never going to change but they're not all coercively controlling people are personality disordered so some that some would call them um there's a group that they would call dependent they're dependent on the relationship to some extent for their identity and for their self-worth and those kinds of things that group um are more likely if they were really motivated to be able to potentially change there would have to be intervention though they're not going to spontaneously change okay so so just picking up on that theme of change the court the family court traditionally has relied on courses and previously it was a course that was run by i think it was run by probation but it was recommended by CAFCAS it was an endorsed course and we all knew what it was and it did require rightly or wrongly it did require the person who was going on the course to accept i think at the outset that they had that that, that they needed to change and then it would run for either 6 months or 12 months and you'd get a report at the end and it was generally thought of as quite a rigorous and quite a difficult thing to do and not everyone came through it but the people who did come come through it i think generally thought it was generally thought well they must have made some changes because i think they had to do group work and i think it was as as frequent as once a week at times now that course isn't available anymore and now the alternatives are are looking at private providers who provide courses uh, they're obviously the litigant has to pay for them but we look at uh, private providers they say that they're dealing with issues of domestic violence sometimes the courses are online sometimes the courses can be done intensively over a weekend or over two weekends it doesn't have obviously it doesn't have quite the status of a probation and CAFCAS endorsed report, but there is also there isn't another option. So I've got a question, a couple of questions following from flowing from that. So one, does it sound like those courses can be as safe and and can create these intervention and changes? And two, you know, if the family court and the professionals within it are trying to assess these courses, how do they know which are the ones, which are the ones that are going to help and which are the ones may not be worth the paper they're written on well <laughs> right courses we are at a stage with uh, perpetrated courses really that i hope they are in a state of development because coercive control is the single biggest risk factor not violence violence is a risk factor and it's a big risk factor but the one that sits at the top in this hierarchy of dangerousness is coercive control now i haven't yet and there may be people out there who can say no actually there are some courses but i have not yet seen a course that addresses control they address violence they address being able to manage your emotions i haven't seen one yet that absolutely says why do you need so much control how can we help you manage that and your obsession so until i see that i'm very skeptical of of courses but there may be some out there i don't know all the courses that are now starting to because of the new language of coercive control starting to bring that in and really address these people's control issues I mean they they are well I can't speak for all of the courses obviously but they are they tend to be focused on on dealing with emotional regulation. Mm. I don't, I'm personally I wouldn't say that that's going to be particularly effective with people who are coercively controlling. Okay. Emotional regulation sounds to me like the old anger management uh, type courses that everybody knows don't work. Um, because it's not about anger it's not about anger management they're quite controlled people they they know exactly when they can express their anger and when they can't and they're, 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 they're arch manipulators in fact and to be manipulative you need some emotional regulation 
Uh, I love the way you say everyone knows that anger management doesn't work. All right, sorry. I'm sure that um, uh, we do. But, uh, I'm not sure that we all have your level of knowledge and insight into that, given how much we talk about anger management courses in the family justice system. Oh, well, so this is what the research is telling us. Anger management is not something we need that, that, that is helpful in addressing coercive control and domestic abuse. All right, well... Again, that's that is a very helpful insight. Um, I, I just wanted to take you back to one of the things Simon was asking about, which is about previous partners. And obviously, you started off with the fact that coercively controlling people, you know, there's a there's a type, and they've often done it before. So when we, when the family justice system is looking at finding facts and trying to establish if someone is a coercively controlling person, as alleged by the other party. I think we are, I mean, unless Simon takes a different view, I mean, we are pretty shy to listen to ex-partners. I think courts are pretty reluctant to call that in. I mean, obviously, often the ex-partners are are reluctant to come, but when they do come forward, I think we're often quite reluctant to listen to what they have to say because the concern is, you know, do they have do they have a sort of set of bias? Do they have an, a separate agenda or revenge to push? So, and of course, that's just making it harder for the judge. But do you take a different view? Are you saying we should be hearing more? I've never really, I've never really thought about ex-partners being involved in the family court system. That's, that's, that's quite an innovative um, idea that they would be, they would be represented as vengeful and sore. And yeah, so I don't, they, they probably wouldn't be believed, so I don't know how, how good that would be. I do think that the use of coercive control experts or, or give, being able to give expert opinion or inform the court about what coercive control looks like and how it works may be useful. And who is a coercive control expert apart from you? I mean, what... what, what? Um, <laughs> there are people out there there are people out there who absolutely understand coercive control and research it or are qualified in it or maybe psychologists or maybe you know criminologists criminologists but i and th- this is just something that that perhaps this is my personal personal experience it's not of the family court it's actually of the criminal system where i have been commissioned as an expert witness to give to talk about coercive control for the court i i it had been said to me more than once that coercive control is a matter of common sense i think that's a that is perhaps a position we need to move forward from in any of the the court systems because coercive control isn't a matter of, of common sense um, and that comes up all the time whenever there's a review of training and, and efficacy of, of policy and practice. You, you mean people say you know it when you see it is as far as they get in, in defining it. Is that what you mean by it's a matter of common sense? Well, that's, that's the words that were used to me. Do we need an expert in coercive control? Because really it's a matter for common sense, of common sense. The jury are going to know what it is. The judge is going to know what it is. And and I really, really, yeah, I reject that notion. It's quite a complex thing to understand. Quite complex, and it's it's reasonably new as well. I mean, I'm sure it, it, clearly it's always been around, but uh, uh, mm. as, a, as a theory that is at the heart of what domestic abuse and, and homicide in in relationships is about as as far as I know it's is relatively new so if it's mm. common sense we would have spotted it a hundred years ago wouldn't we well this is the thing it's a new language isn't it it's new legislation like you just said the patterns themselves have been around for years but we're only talking about them now so yeah it's not a matter of common sense I think it's actually something that juries and and legal personnel would probably think, what's this? Where do I find out about this? I'll look at the legislation. The legislation's not going to teach you what it is. And even domestic abuse, the way that we talked about that, isn't even a matter of common sense, is it? 
I mean, I could talk to you all night, but I realise that's not the idea. But I just wanted to ask about economic abuse and where that fits in. Because again, that that is something that in the family justice system, of course, it's been around forever with everyone saying they've had restricted access to money or restricted access to employment or coerced debt, all of those things. That's That's been around forever. But I think for us to be terming it and identifying it as economic abuse that is that is more recent for us and I want to understand how where that fits in in the timeline and how concerning that is. Well if you think of coercive control as an as the umbrella pattern of behavior and everything this all of the tactics that are used to achieve that control sit underneath this big umbrella term. So financial abuse is one of those things. So financial abuse is used to control and to trap the person in the relationship. So it may trap them through them not having the financial means to leave. It may be that, you know, all of these loans have been taken out and that debt is going to follow that victim around and they've got CCJs and they're never going to be able to get a property. You know how it works. So it's just one tactic. That tactic will be used along with other tactics. There's never just one. So, you know, there may be psychological abuse. There may be gaslighting as well. There may be violence. There may be sexual abuse. There may be all of these things happening at the same time and just layering over and layering over that is coercive control it's all of those things happening at once with the sole purpose of trapping this person within your sphere of control which is usually a relationship thank you well look i want to say this thank you for bringing on our understanding and let me just say this as a uh, a woman and a mother and a daughter and a sister and a friend, you know, thank, thank you for the work you're doing to make women safer and children safer. So let me say say that to you as well. Thank you very much. And, and you know, the family court system is doing really important work as well. I think if we're all working together, that's what it's going to take. It's just changing the changing the narrative, isn't it? Thank you, Jane. That was absolutely fascinating, as Anita said. Really, really interesting. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review.